Scripture reading for today comes from John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. The topic will be the Holy Spirit, but if you can follow along on the inside of your bulletin, I'll read it for us. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this will jump to chapter 16, verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. All right, throughout this past year, uh, the elders have been going through a series entitled Back to Basics, Back to Basics. Um, these are basic things that we either ought to know or ought to do to be flourishing Christians, Christians whose leaves are green, Christians whose lives bear fruit, that is, Christians whose faith make it possible for them to impact the world in a positive way. Now, last time I spoke, uh, I spoke about friendship, but today I wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And the reason I wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit comes from chapter 14, verse 12, the first verse in our passage today. <laughs> uh, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will they do, because I am going to the Father. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will they do, because I'm going to the Father. Jesus' promise is that the church and those that believe in him will do greater works than he did. But when you look and think about what his life was like, there's like a shock. There's like a little bit of a disconnect. 
Jesus turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He healed people in amazing ways. One time he spoke from a distance and somebody was healed. One time he even healed a person who had been born blind. Famously, in John chapter 9 through 11, he even raised someone from the dead. Jesus did amazing things while he was alive. And verse 12, he promises us that the church and those who follow after him will do even greater things than these. This is an amazing verse, and this is a shocking verse because when I look at my own life and when I look at churches, it makes me question whether this verse is true. Are we really doing greater works than Jesus? This week was uh, May 4th, and it's Star Wars Day, and I just remember, you know, as a kid, like, trying to move things with my mind, you know, by the power of my speech making the door open or getting cups of water to fill automatically, and none of that stuff ever happened. And when I think about this verse and I think about Jesus saying, you will do greater works than me, I think maybe at least one time out of the hundred that I tried, something miraculous, something amazing would have happened. But even then, we don't see that kind of stuff in the church today, if we're honest. Where are the people that are experiencing the type of awe, the type of healing, the type of restoration that poured forth from Christ while he was on the earth? Why isn't that stuff going on in the churches today? Now, perhaps I'm being unfair. Uh, Some theologians will make the point that miracles are not as necessary for today's church as they were for the ancient church because the foundation of the gospel has been firmly established. Fine, I'll grant you that. But those are not the only kind of works that Jesus did. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus put a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet. Even though he was greater than them, he served them. When his friend Lazarus died, he walked three days to be with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, to weep with them and to offer them words of comfort. In chapter 15, the chapter between the two that we read today, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. And he lived out this verse by dying on the cross for his disciples. Leave behind the miraculous works for a second. What about these type of works? Are we as individuals, are we as a church, doing greater works of humble service than Jesus? Are we doing greater works of comfort for those who are grieving than Jesus? Are we doing greater works of sacrificial love than him? And I think if we're honest, we would probably say no, at least not consistently so. So verse 12 goes from being a promise to a bit of a challenge, a bit of a diagnostic question. Are the works that the church is doing now the same or even greater than the works that Christ himself did while he was on the earth? And when we answer no, we have to ask, why is there such a disconnect? Why is it that seems that we as individuals and the church are simply not measuring up in that way? And the answer comes in verses 16 and 17 in today's passage. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus promises, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He dwells with you and will be in you. One of the reasons that there's a disconnect between Christ and us is that we do not understand or live in the reality of the Holy Spirit. We do not understand or live in the reality of the Holy Spirit, the most mysterious and perhaps the most neglected member of the Trinity. Christianity is unique in its view of God in that we consider God to be triune, What that means is he's three persons in one essence. And every week when we gather together, we remind ourselves of this in the Apostles' Creed. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, but if you look inside your bulletin real quick and look at the Apostles' Creed, 
it's divided into basically three sections. The first section covers God the Father. He's our almighty Father. He's the creator of heaven. And then you get to Jesus, and there's a lot about Jesus, probably the most about Jesus. And then you get to the Holy Spirit, and it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) There's nothing else that's written about him. And if I were the Holy Spirit, I think I'd kind of be like, no, what the heck? You guys have nothing to say about me? <laughs> nothing to describe me? I think it's probably how George Harrison and Ringo Starr felt walking around with Paul McCartney and John Lennon. They got all the attention. I think it's probably how Chris Bosh must have felt in Miami when Dwayne Wade and LeBron James were up there giving press conferences without him. He's like, hey, I came to Miami too. <laughs> how come nobody invites me up on the press conference? What about me? Today, that's the question we're going to be answering. What about the Holy Spirit? And the main thing that we're going to learn from today's passage is that the Holy Spirit connects us to Christ. Before we talk about how he does that, let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you so much for this time, and I thank you for every single person here. Um, I know we're all coming from different places. I know that we're all struggling with or celebrating different things. Uh, I pray for people who are struggling and people who have had a difficult week and maybe they're wondering where you are and maybe they're wondering if you're out there, why you're not helping them. I pray that as we worship you today, that you would give them your peace and that you would give them your comfort. I pray for those people that are here um, out of a sense of habit or even maybe out of obligation to someone else, and they're not really sure if any of this is real. They're not sure how this applies to them, but we know from this passage that the Holy Spirit can make Christ's presence real, and so we just pray that your spirit would come and open up certain hearts in this room so they come to understand and see that there's something more than what we can taste, what we can touch, what we can see, what we can smell. And lastly, Lord, I just want to pray for our church. Um, It's easy to just keep on going and doing what we do without even thinking about your power, without even thinking about why we're doing what we're doing, without even thinking about how we need you to be able to do the works that you're calling us to do. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall in a powerful way in each of our hearts so that we could know you, that you would not be someone distant, but that you would be close that when we look back on the ministry that we're doing and that we will have done as a church, that we'll be able to say that we have done the works of Christ and even greater works than these. We thank you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. So the Holy Spirit connects us to Jesus. How does he do do this? The first thing that he does is he leads us into truth. The Holy Spirit leads us into truth. John 14, 17, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And in verse 26, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit leads us into the truth, especially the truth about Jesus. Now, there are various times in our life where we crave the truth. Oftentimes, when we experience something new, we can develop a hunger there. Going to college for the first time or Moving into a new city puts you in contact with people from different backgrounds, and when you do that, you often think about how you grew up and why you believe what you believe, and you can be put on a search for deeper meaning. Wow, in this new experience, in this new place, where is there truth? New experience can make you hungry for different types of truth, 
Uh, Jen and I just had a baby, and I've learned more about baby sleep and baby food and baby poop than I ever wanted to know in my life. But you got to learn that kind of stuff so you can get a full night's sleep. So I read and I learned, and my knowledge pales in comparison to my wife, but there you go. Now, for some of us, perhaps we've experienced a longing for truth, not because of a new experience, but because of crisis. There are moments where something unexpected or traumatic happens, and our world changes. And it's natural in moments like that to want or to demand answers. We want to know why this particular thing happened and what the point of it was, especially when it seems so senseless and doesn't make any sense to us. Sometimes this can come from a sense of restlessness that arises with the monotony of life. We do the same thing every day, and even though superficial things seem to change around us, we still get this feeling that there's a pointlessness to the way that we're living. T.S. Eliot, the modernist poet, describes this as if we're all scarecrows in the poem The Hollow Men. He writes, We are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw, alas. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. The monotonous rhythm of the city, riding on the subway day in and out, going into work, punching in and out, especially as a young adult, can make you feel like you are a stuffed scarecrow, a hollow person going through the motions without a sense of why, without a conviction of what the point of this is. This poem famously ends by saying, this is the way that the world ends, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. There can be a monotony in life, and when we take a step back from that and we start to evaluate what's the purpose of this, an appetite for truth can develop, and we can think to ourselves, is this all that there is? Isn't there something more? Amen. Whatever the spur is, there will come a time in our lives where we want to know something deeper, and Jesus speaks to that desire. Whether it's from crisis, whether it's from wanting to experience something new, whether it's being sick of the monotony of life, Jesus can speak into those moments. Jesus speaks to Mary and Martha right after their brother dies and gives them words of comfort, and he weeps with them. Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman who's just trying to get a drink of water at a well and who's convinced that you have to worship in a particular place, but he says, no, you can worship in spirit and in truth. And he speaks to a career Pharisee named Nicodemus who thinks there might be something deeper than just the religious and political life that he's involved himself in. Jesus speaks to us with the truth, but if you've ever tried to read the Bible and you've looked at it for the first time, sometimes his words can be very hard to understand. Sometimes they can be weird. Sometimes they can be a little gross. And Jesus says some of the craziest things in the Bible when you read it for the first time. And I think, you know, for people who grow up in the church, there's a tendency to go, well, you know, that's just Jesus being Jesus, and we let him get away with saying something really weird. Uh, it's the same way that we feel when Charles Barkley talks about wanting to punch Draymond Green in the face. We go, oh, that's just Charles being Charles. It's the same way we feel when Kanye West picks up his phone and goes on Twitter again and says some crazy things, and we just go, that's just Kanye being Kanye. That's just Charles being Charles. That's just Jesus being Jesus, saying these strange things. But the problem with that is it makes his words easy to dismiss rather than something that we should be wrestling with, rather than something that has the potential to give us life. And when we look at how his contemporaries reacted to what he said, we can tr see how truly strange he was and the things that he said were. 
For example, in John chapter 3, Jesus meets with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, as I mentioned, is a career Pharisee. And in that conversation, Jesus says to him, you won't really understand who I am or what I'm about unless you're born again. Unless you're born again. And Nicodemus says, unless I'm born again, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Gross. Disgusting. Later on in John chapter 6, Jesus had just miraculously fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And when the people asked him for another sign, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Jesus has gone cannibal and vampire on us and records And the gospel records that many people said, this is a hard saying, and they turned away from him and never walked with him again. On the surface, when you actually think about what Jesus says, he says some crazy things, he says some gross things, he says some weird things. But Jesus speaks truth into our lives, and he does so in strange ways. How can we make sense of these kind of sayings and these types of words when they seem so weird? This can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. This can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, particularly the truth about Jesus' words. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus' crazy words make sense. With his help, we see that Jesus was not talking about cannibalism. He was not talking about vampirism or literally being born again a second time. Instead, he's using the basic features of life to point out something deeper. He's using birth, bread, water, light to point us to a deeper reality. Jesus was saying that the things that we consume and that consume us in this world are not all that there is, that there is something deeper. Jesus is trying to explain a truth that we actually don't have a framework to understand. It's like trying to explain color to a person who had been born blind. How would you explain what red looks like? How would you explain what the light bouncing off the ocean looks like to somebody who doesn't have sight, someone who's never seen before? The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us eyes to see the reality that Jesus talks about that he has to use our basic language to describe. In this way, the Holy Spirit is like 3D glasses in a movie theater that makes a blurry mess come alive. He's like noise-canceling headphones on a noisy plane with a noisy kid sitting next to you that blocks out ambient sound so that you can hear music clearly. He's an analyst or a counselor who sees beyond volatile behaviors to help us understand underlying trends and patterns. The Holy Spirit connects us to Jesus by helping us understand his words. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' extraordinary claims or extreme-sounding statements become the path to understanding a deeper reality or truth. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just help us understand the truth, he transforms us with that truth. I think we all know that knowledge is not created equal. Some truth is just kind of interesting, it's kind of entertaining, but other truth is deeply transformative. It's like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. He wanted to learn Kung Fu, so he downloaded Kung Fu into his brain, and then bam, he knew Kung Fu. Sort of, (laughs) sort of. But he was the still same old Keanu, you know, with that same way of talking and that same way of looking. And this is interesting knowledge. This is entertaining knowledge. This is trivial knowledge, but not transformative knowledge. 
At the end of the movie, when he realized that he was the one, that was transformative knowledge. That was knowledge that allowed him to manipulate space and time. And this is the type of truth that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand. And by understanding it, he transforms us and he transforms our lives. So what is the content of this truth? What are the specific things that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand? This can be found in chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, at the bottom of our passage. Chapter 16, verses 8 to 11. Jesus says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now these are probably the most difficult verses in today's passage uh, to understand because they're so compressed and they're so compact. But when you take a step back, I think what they're basically saying is that the Holy Spirit convicts us that there is a major problem in the world and in our hearts, but that because of Jesus there is hope, and not just a fleeting hope, but a sure hope, a hope that is victorious, a hope that conquers. Throughout this book, John describes the world as a dark place, a place enshrouded in darkness. It's a place where evil deeds are done in secret and they are covered up with lies and deception. These deeds are works of oppression and works of violence. And this wickedness, this darkness actually extends to all types of people. It extends to men. It extends to women. It extends to the healthy. It extends to the sick. It extends to the rich and to the poor, to the religious and the non-religious and even to Jesus' own followers like Judas and Peter. Now, I don't think we can make a claim of exclusivity. We don't necessarily need the Holy Spirit to see that there is evil in the world. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Cone pointed out the darkness of racism. Journalists have pointed out the darkness of pedophilia in the church and sexual assault against women in Hollywood and academia and other places. Throughout history, others have shown that there is darkness in the world, but the Holy Spirit is necessary if people who do these wrongs are going to be convicted that there is something wrong. Aren't you amazed at how strong the will to denial is? How even when people are presented with irrefutable proof that they are lying, that they have done something wicked, that they persist in denying it. They deny, they deny, they deny, they lawyer up, and they protect themselves. Now, sometimes they make an apology, but it's really hard to trust the sincerity of that apology uh, because the motives of saving face or being allowed to continue to work or simply to appease a self-righteous public is so strong. But there are some times where you recognize how genuinely wrong you are, how you catch a glimpse of who you really are and say, oof, I messed up. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been in a fight with someone and in the middle of fighting and going back and forth, it suddenly dawns on you that, oh, they're right, and I'm wrong. <laughs> it's one of the worst feelings. It, like, hits you in your stomach. And sometimes you feel that in the middle of a fight, but you're so, like, juiced up that you keep going anyway, even though you know you're dead wrong. Um, and I think that happens all the time. I hate that feeling. But the ability to own that mistake and go, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, is not just an intellectual realization. It's a spiritual act. It's a spiritual act of humbling yourself and saying, oh, there is a darkness that lives in me. There's a darkness that's affecting this situation. It's kind of like that feeling you get of looking in the mirror for the first time after a long day only to notice that you've 
had a booger hanging out of your nose the entire day. You didn't know that you were wrong, but there it is, and nobody told you about it. And that's the conviction <laughs> that the Holy Spirit gives you, <laughs> like a booger in your nose, that there's darkness in the world and in our hearts and in different places. And when we realize that, we have to own up to that. But that conviction is only half of the story. The Holy Spirit also tells us that not only is there darkness in the world, but that that darkness can be turned into light. Verses 10 to 11 read that the Holy Spirit convicts the world about righteousness because Jesus goes to the Father and we will see him no more and about judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit lets us know that our situation is not hopeless, despite how much darkness there might be, despite how much darkness is in us, despite how much darkness is in the world. Now, the Gospel of John introduces Jesus as a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3, 17, following that famous verse, says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus saves the world from the darkness of sin by absorbing it, and bearing the weight of it on his body through his death on the cross and defeating it through his resurrection. Now, Jesus was a controversial figure. He said some weird things. He said some crazy things. He said some gross things. But he did not do anything deserving of death. And when you look at the story of his death in the Gospel of John, it's amazing to see how many people conspired to get him to that place. He was betrayed by a friend, Judas, at the prompting of an evil spirit, Satan. He was handed over by the national and religious people and leaders of his own people, the Pharisees, who recommended that he be sentenced to an unjust death. Jesus was ultimately executed by a political figure, Pontius Pilate, a representative of the most powerful state that the world had seen at that time. Jesus' broken body hanging on the cross had become the focal point of personal evil, of cosmic evil, of national evil, and political evil, and he bore it all as an innocent lamb, as someone who had done nothing wrong, as someone who accepted injustice without bitterness or resistance. In fact, he went into it willingly and knowingly, and he did it to free the world from the weight of all this evil. My suspicion is most of us in this room have heard this before at some point in our lives but a faint acknowledgement or tacit understanding of it won't change us. It won't pull us out of darkness. And we need something more than just a vague understanding. We need conviction. And that conviction can only come from the Holy Spirit. Now, I grew up in church and probably heard these things all my life. And, you know, as a high school student, I was, you know, emotional. <laughs> and, you know, listened to a lot of dark music and went around causing trouble and it didn't really click for me until I was a freshman in college and that's when I really started to question what do I really believe and it was here that I saw myself in the mirror for the first time the things that I grew up kind of taking for granted about myself I saw that there were major flaws major ways that I had hurt people especially the people that were close to me and one night I went to a church on campus and they were doing these silly little plays and skits <laughs> that, you know, they're fine. Uh, and one of them showed three people struggling to move around because they were carrying these very big, heavy duffel bags, and they were just too small to move around. But there was one person on the stage who was free. He wasn't encumbered by anything. But what he did was he gradually took these burdens off and placed them on himself, 
and allow the people to walk and go free. Now, saying it now, it's so cheesy (laughs) and it's so simple, but for some reason at that time in my life when I saw that, something clicked, not in my mind, but in my heart. And I understood for the first time what Jesus had done for me. And I remember thinking that, you know, not my stuff, not my sin, not my hurt, not my anxiety. Um, They were too large and too heavy for him to carry. But in that moment, he spoke to me and he said, that's why I came, get up and walk. Now, I heard these things all my life, and that conviction didn't come from an intellectual knowledge. It wasn't even the sociological and psychological events of my life conspiring me to make a dramatic decision. That conviction ultimately comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. He does not just help us understand the truth. He transforms our life with the truth. That night, my life changed, and it wasn't that skit, but the presence of the Holy Spirit that did it. The Holy Spirit leads us into truth. He transforms us with the truth, and he helps us understand and believe that, yes, there is evil in the world, but Jesus has borne that evil on his body and defeated it through his resurrection. And when you can believe that, your life can be transformed because there was once darkness, now there's light. Where there was once worry, there's now peace. Where there was once fear, there is now love. And the Holy Spirit gives us the conviction to be able to live in that hope that Jesus has won for us. The power of the Holy Spirit makes these things come alive so that we can have life, we can have light where there once was death and darkness. But there is one more thing that the Spirit does for us that these verses teach. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus present to us. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus present to us. One of the most difficult problems with Christianity is that it centers on a person who's not physically here. He was on earth 2,000 years ago, but now he's seated at the right hand of God. The Father, I heard a classmate of mine explain it this way. It's like telling people, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then basically trying to explain how you have an imaginary friend that they can't talk to and they can't touch and they can't see. Where is Jesus? And Jesus himself acknowledges that there is this gap in chapter 14, verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. And in chapter 16, verses 5 to 6, now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things. Sorrow has filled your heart. At the center of Christianity is an absence. Jesus is painfully absent from us. And for people who want to know him or want to believe in him, there is a challenge. How are we supposed to have a relationship with someone who's no longer here? Uh, Jen and I, as I mentioned, had a daughter uh, who's going to be turning three months this week, and it's been fun having her in our life. Um, She's cute, but she's still very basic. You know, I try and read her Latin and German. She's not having none of it. I try and, like, you know, show her art. Oh, she likes TV, though. She loves TV, so we've been watching a lot of... um, NBA playoffs. Uh, And if you saw yesterday's Sixers game, it was awful. (laughs) So, yeah. Hope you enjoyed it, Arlo. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, having a child, I think, makes you think about, you know, the people who have been there for you in your life and how you wish they could be there for her. So one of the first things I did when I had the chance was FaceTime my grandma in Korea. 
and my mom was there and you know I have you know screenshots of it and she's smiling and it's very nice and I think technology is amazing in that way it can make someone who is absent present but of course it has its limits uh, my dad passed away more than 10 years ago and as anyone in the situation would feel you want there to be a connection I wish she could have met him. Now, as I mentioned, she's very basic, so who knows if they would have gotten along. But they could have read books together, they could have listened to music together, they could have gone on walks together, and he could have bought her all the stuff that we told them not to buy her. How will Arlo get to know her grandfather since their lifespans do not overlap? I have an old watch. Uh, that my mom gave him when they got married. I have pictures of him. I have emails from him uh, from when we graduated college. Now, I can give Arlo these things, and I can show her his picture, and I can read her these emails. But more than those things, I can show her what he was like through the way that I live, through the way that I carry myself by making sure that who I am reflects the best parts of him and the things that he hoped I would be. Now, the best way for Arla to get to know my dad is through me and through people like my mom, my sisters, my brother, who had a connection to him and can serve as a bridge between him and her. And this is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a connection between us and Christ, somebody who knows him intimately so that even though our lifespans don't overlap and intersect, he can be present to us in the most powerful of ways. John chapter 16, verse 7 says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Throughout the gospel, John tells us that the Holy Spirit will manifest Jesus to us. He tells us that the Spirit will be Jesus' witness to us and to the world. He tells us that the Spirit makes it possible for Christ to make with his home with us even today. I can serve as a bridge between Arlo and her grandfather, but in a deeper and more profound way, the Holy Spirit does that for us and Christ. We are not alone despite the distance. We are not here worshiping an absence. We are worshiping somebody who is present. And that presence is mediated by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is here in our midst, worship becomes powerful. When the Holy Spirit is here, his words have the ability to change our life. When the Holy Spirit is here, when we long for truth, when we long for comfort, when we long for peace, when we long for presence, we will experience those things because they ultimately come from him. My mom told me to keep it short, so I'm going to speed along. Uh, the Holy Spirit, in closing, leads us into truth, especially about Jesus, and he transforms our life with that truth and presents Christ to us. In closing, just a few practical suggestions. Now that we've talked about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Part of it's a mystery. J Jesus says that he's like the wind that blows here and there wherever he wants and so sometimes it's a little bit out of our control. We have no reason to explain why sometimes, someday, something hits us in a powerful way, even when we've heard it a million times. Jen and I get in a fight about this all the time when she's like, hey, can you go 
please, you know, stop doing this, and I don't listen to her, and then someone else says the exact same thing, and then I listen, and she goes, how can you never listen when I say it? I go, the Holy Spirit wasn't at work. I don't know. So that can happen, and there's a mystery to it, but there are some things that we can do. First, we can make ourselves familiar with the words of Christ. If you're not sure where to start, begin with the Gospel of John. Now, not everything will be clear, as I mentioned, but as you read, ask God to show you what is true. The more you open yourself up to his words, the more points of contact you make between yourself and the Holy Spirit. They're like grains of sand around which the Holy Spirit can form pearls of Christ's presence or pieces of Velcro that can make him stick to your life. Take whatever metaphor you like. But the more scripture you have in your heart, the more opportunity you have for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Second thing you can do is pray for the Holy Spirit. In verses 13 and 14, it says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Luke 11:13 is more explicit. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you're at a place in your life where you are searching for the truth, or if you want to know whether Jesus is real or not, ask God for the Holy Spirit. Ask him for the Holy Spirit. Don't just wander around and trying to hope that you get hit by lightning. But there is a promise. God will give the Spirit to those who ask. And when he does that, that which is unfamiliar and distant and strange can become known, it become present, and it become comforting. Lastly, why does Good News Church need the Holy Spirit? Good News needs the Holy Spirit because if we're going to be more than a church that simply goes on, or more than a church that exists for our own sake and for the sake of our own people, quote-unquote, and if we want to be a church that actually does greater works than Jesus, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be in this place. Otherwise, we'll remain like a smartphone without any network connection. I mean, those are nice. You can take pictures with it. You can record the world. But you can't do half the things that you are meant to do. Ultimately, we are called to be a church that is connected to Christ and connect others to him as well and to use a better metaphor than just a smartphone our church needs to be a vine that abides in the branch of christ in john chapter 15 jesus says i am the vine and you are the branches whoever abides in me and i in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing the holy spirit is the glue it's the connection it's the joint that keeps the vine attached to the branch it's through the power of the holy spirit that Good News Church will ultimately be a church who does greater works than even Christ himself. Let's pray.